Hello, listeners. Before diving into today's episode, I wanted to share a few ways you can go deeper with the ideas I talk about in this podcast and support my work. The first is my book, The Pathless Path, which many of you have probably already heard about, but if you haven't purchased it already, I really think you'll love it. The second is The Pathless Path Community, which I just opened up as a one-time pay-what-feels-right access fee. And in that group, you can meet hundreds of other people from around the world on unconventional paths like me. Finally, I'm working on a second book tentatively called Good Work, which is going to explore my deeper relationship with work and how that led to a lot of the transformations in my life. You can follow along in my newsletter, Pathless, which you can also find a link to that in the show notes if you want to learn more about that. Without further ado, let's dive into the show. Welcome to the Boundless Podcast. I'm Paul Millard, and I created this podcast because I'm passionate about making sense of the future of work and having conversations with the innovators, creators, and thought leaders who are carving their path in today's fast-changing world. You can check out the podcast and more on BoundlessPod.com. Today I talk with Pari Pandian, who's the men and women's tennis head coach at Wheaton College. He's had a really interesting path, and we dive into that and how we ended up uh, pursuing coaching as a career, and also some of his interests and thoughts around leadership, coaching, and how he approaches uh, coaching different types of teams. He's also involved in the Healthy Masculinity Project, and we dig into that a bit and talk about what is the role for men and what are the models for men in leadership in today's world, which is, I found pretty fascinating. Hope you enjoy the podcast today. Again, thanks again to all you wonderful, wonderful listeners. Uh, you are the best and appreciate any feedback. Uh, if you want to hear different guests, different topics, you want to hear me talk about different things, just uh, let me know. Email me in the show notes and if you're liking what you're hearing and uh, are feeling super generous and want to uh, support me, uh, you can support me for a dollar a month. Uh, that is less than most things cost um, on Patreon. So check that link in the show notes and um, hope you enjoy the pod today. Pari, welcome to the podcast today. Paul, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. I am excited as well. So we've known each other for a while, and we've had some pretty awesome discussions, and I thought it'd be awesome to jump on the podcast and dive into some of these. I think you have some interesting ideas around performance, coaching, and learning, and I'm also just fascinated in exploring how you thought about carving a path because you weren't pursuing like a typical business career. So we'll dig into all that. But I'd love to start with just asking you a little bit about tennis. When did you first start playing tennis? So I first started when I was seven years old. Um, you know, I think I, like a lot of people, wanted to play play football and baseball and your quote-unquote all-American sports, and my parents put a tennis racket in my hands. Um and I also played base, uh, sorry, basketball and soccer and, and had a blast. But yeah, I started playing when I was seven and probably played all three sports up until high school. And then when I got to high school, I sort of really started specializing in, in tennis and kind of 
you know, had thoughts about playing tennis in college at that point. So were you like me thinking professional athlete when you were growing up? No, no, no. That was not, not part of the mindset in my, my Indian household. It was very <laughs> much, very much academics first. Um, and then everything else came, came after that. Um, but also I think part of it is, I think with tennis, you see, even when you're young, even when I'm training in middle school, you know that these young players are, they're pro and making it, at least at that point, it's kind of changed a little bit now, but you know, yeah, I remember watching Andy Roddick play in the U.S. Open when he was like 18, you know. And so, yeah, you know, if I'm 14, I'm like, <laughs> I got a little, I got a little ways to go to get to that point. So, um, so it wasn't a huge part of the mindset there. So, how did you think about playing tennis in college, though? You ended up going to uh, Wesleyan, which is a pretty awesome school academically. But uh, how did tennis play into that? Well, I. I, I played, you know, I loved playing the sport. I loved playing on my high school team. I think, um, you know, junior tennis players generally are playing for their high school team, and then they're also uh, mainly playing U.S. Tennis Association tournaments, and that's how you can get regional rankings and national rankings. And uh, those aren't very fun, I don't think. It's like a really, it's not a great atmosphere in a lot of ways. Um, the competition and the, the level of play is obviously really high, but uh, I found that. And so I did those, uh, probably not as extensively as other junior players, but I did those. But I found that I just my the most fun I had was when I was playing on on my high school tennis team and, and also kind of growing up playing on on basketball teams and soccer teams. So um, I knew that I wanted it to be a part of my experience um, in college. That being said, because I didn't play a ton of USTA events, my I. I knew that sort of I my brain was kind of first and foremost sort of get me get me to where I wanted to go. And then I was sort of comfortable with the idea of walking onto a team. So I had actually talked to the coach who was there at the time when I was going through the application process, um, applied early, got in and then uh, and then he retired. So I had a new coach um, that I was kind of starting my my career with and um which was which was fine. Again, I had no I had no qualms about sort of earning my place. And I also had a friend of mine who was a year older than me who was on the women's team. Um, and she she kind of knew my level. She knew where the men's team's level was at. And so she was like, yeah, you should feel pretty comfortable about being on this team. So when when in college did you start thinking seriously about uh, pursuing tennis as a possible career path? I don't know if you would even call it a, a career path that that rings uh, business for me, but. Yeah, no, I think, um, well, in the summers, I was always coaching. I would work at um, some different tennis camps, whether some local, some um, some sort of in, in Western Mass. And I love teaching, and I think that teaching in in various roles kind of runs in my family, particularly on my, on my dad's side. And so um, I, I love the sport, but I really enjoyed working with working with kids. And so... I, that being said, I wasn't, you know, when I finish, when I was finishing up school, I was sort of of the mindset, well, I'm going to, I'm going to move to Boston and then I'll, I'll kind of figure it all out from there. And, um, and, you know, we were, I graduated in 2008. So June of 2008, the, uh, the pickings could be a little bit slim at that, at that point. That's um, I I don't know what's worse to grab. I probably oh nine was the really bad year, but I think it was starting to get bad around then. 
Indeed, indeed. And I had thoughts about um, doing like Teach for America. I actually went yeah. through like the whole application process and had was at the point where I was picking my training dates. And oh, wow. Ev- yeah, every single training date they offered conflicted with my sister's wedding in India. And so I asked him, I was like, well, can I defer a year? And they were just, they just said flat out, no, you can't. You're in or you're out. And so I was like, (laughs) which is kind of shocking. And, um, and so, I mean, my being at that experience for my sister and going to India at that time was important to me. And, um, and it also, and, and I have just issues with, Teach for America in general, like there's a lot of good things about it, but there's a lot of issues with the organization as well. And so it wasn't heartbreaking for me to have to say no to that um, right. or to or choose to say no to that, I suppose. Awesome. Um, so, so it sounds like teaching was like a really strong driver for you. Um, yeah. Yeah. When, so where did you go from there? You started, uh, you started getting into coaching, uh, or at least thinking sure, about yeah. it a little more seriously. So in once I finished school, um, I was uh, back um, back in the Boston area where I grew up um, for a little bit. Then went to India for a portion of the summer um, to spend some time there and and go um, and be at my sister's wedding. And then when I came back, I went out to uh, to Western Mass to work at these uh, overnight tennis camps um, that I'd been working at for a number of years. And then the the director and the co-director there run a junior training club in central mass. And so they asked me if I wanted to come aboard in the fall. And, um, I, at that point I didn't have any, I didn't really have a ton lined up and I hadn't like looked into a ton of stuff. And so yeah. it was a good opportunity because I, I knew them. I knew I'd work well with them. Um, they, they took real, they've taken great care of me throughout my life. And I had known them since I was probably 15 or 16. So, um, it was, it was an easy thing to say yes to. Right. When So when did that start uh, bubbling in your head? Maybe this is a, a path I could follow more seriously or long term. I think um, I think over the course of that year, I was I was teaching with them. I was teaching at a few different places. I was doing some SAT and ACT tutoring at that time as well. Um, I was kind of just hustling. Um, and and I re- and then that that following summer. So uh, sorry, the following spring. So we're talking spring of 2009. I started coaching a high school team, um, in the Boston area. And I, um, and there were I no just, jobs then anyway. So, right. Exactly. <laughs> so whatever I, it was, it was kind of, the question was whether it was worth trying to apply to just go back to school and get a master's, whether right. it's a master's in education or something. And I just didn't, I didn't want to do it at that point. I think it was, I felt it was important to, to work and kind of just, I didn't want to just be right back in that academic setting. Um, and so it was sort of at that point. And, and I think by that spring, I had started to really accumulate a good amount of students and, you know, felt good about what I was doing. And, and I felt like I was improving as a, as a coach and as a teacher. And so that's where I started to, or that was probably the first time I really started kind of thinking about this being a long, more long-term path. From there, how did you end up at Brandeis? So that was, so I started up there in the fall of uh, 2011. So after my third year of coaching, where I was primarily teaching out of this, 
this club and working with juniors or privately um, and then coaching this uh, coaching the high school team in the spring, I kind of realized going basically in that summer, I was, I felt like I love, I was coaching tennis state for, you know, 50, 52 weeks a year. And of that period of time, the, what I enjoyed the most was the eight weeks I was coaching this high school team. I loved being in that team setting and really being able to set the tone and um, help develop those kids within that setting. And so I had kind of made the decision at that point um, that I was, that was going to be my last year doing that in that capacity. I don't actually know how many people I've told that to, but um, yeah, I was like, if I'm going to probably change what I'm doing just because I, you know, working just as a teaching pro at clubs can be, can be great in certain ways, but it's also just a grind. And I felt yeah. like I wasn't able to, to really, to really, really kind of make it a rewarding experience would have been to take over, you know, some try to take over, get a director position at some small club. And I, um, and I just felt like I, I knew that that wasn't necessarily the right fit for me. And, uh, and then at Brandeis, it was sort of a, it was a fortuitous phone call where uh, my assistant coach at the the high school that I was coaching was um, was also a former college tennis player. He uh, he went he's from New England. He went to uh, he played at Amherst. Their teams played against each other when we were in college, and he became he and I became really close working together with the with the teams. And he was a a teacher at that at that school and. Um, and the, the Brandeis head coach was looking for an assistant coach. And so I got connected to, uh, the, the head coach at Brandeis through, through my buddy Josh. And, um, and then it's sort of, you know, we had a, a couple of long conversations, me and uh, coach Ben Lamano over there and realized our, our values were very much in line. And, um, it just, it felt, it felt right. And I had a good friend of mine who had played for, who had played for Ben and had nothing but phenomenal things to say. So I felt good about that, about that choice and that sort of option. Awesome. What are some of those values? Ah, well, he's, um, I think first and foremost, Ben and I both, um, when we're coaching our teams, I think we care a lot. We do care about our results. I think we care about building nationally ranked teams and all Americans and, and all that. But, um, I think we really care a lot about our players. And I think for, to be a really great coach, you have to just invest in your players, not just as, as athletes, but as people. And, um, and I think that just the communicate, the way he communicates with, with his players, he's not like a yeller and screamer. He treats them, he treats them like adults and, um, tries to really build trust and, and just wants to help them become well-rounded. And that's, that was my experience in my college tennis program. I felt like I became a way better person. And that was one of sort of the driving forces looking back on it, where I felt this was a great opportunity to kind of pay that forward. Well, it, it sounds like you were pretty successful there. I mean, top 30 in the country, six All-Americans, national coaching awards. What were some of the factors that uh, drove that success, you think? I mean, first and foremost, he and I just, we grinded. We were out there. We were putting in the hours to 
just develop our players. I think, you know, we, we, I think the way we thought through our program building is first and foremost, having a really positive team culture. So, you know, we, we tell all, we told all of our players, I think he continues to do that to this day. I certainly do with mine now, um, that their first responsibility was to be a great teammate, to be selfless, to, you know, to, to care about each other, to learn about each other off the court. Um, and then to, and then our other big piece was player development. And that's partly, that's partly developing them physically with just whatever tools they need on right. to actually execute on court, um, but also mentally and emotionally. And so it's just sort of attacking all three phases there. It's really, and being really consistent with that. I'm ac- I'm actually curious. You mentioned being a good teammate is the first thing, and I think uh, so. I played tennis, but ultimately tennis is a pretty individual sport. Of course, you're always together as a team. How do you think about tennis uh, as a collection of individuals versus the team, and how you uh, bring that together? I mean, the, the yeah. doubles you have teams for sure. But, uh, for sure, yeah, yeah, and I think that's sort of the big one of the big differences with with rec tennis versus junior tennis, like junior tournament tennis, um, compared to high school and and certainly college tennis, where in a college tennis match the scoring is a little different, or between Division One and Division Three. But say in Division Three, there's there's three doubles matches followed by six singles matches, and so there's nine nine matches total, each is worth one point. So um, Whichever school wins five of the nine points wins the wins that match, and you you need to I think players to to really get, carve out those five points in even matchups. You need people who have a driving force behind them that's that's more than just themselves. Yeah, and they it's it is one of those things. I think this is across a lot of sports where if the talent if if one player is just physically just dominant over another yeah. player, like that, that stuff, the culture doesn't necessarily matter. You know, they're, they're going to win, right. but in an even matchup, that's where when it's a four, four match and there's someone playing that they're in their last in that they're the last match on and whichever player wins, they're going to win the match for their school. They're going to, they're going to execute better if they believe that their team believes in them, you know, and if they care, if they have a group of teammates that are, that, that just care about them and are, are cheering for them and are being nice and loud. So yeah, it's, it's, it's a funny thing because it's, if you go watch a college tennis match, it's, it's pretty loud, um, which I think most people wouldn't necessarily expect oh, within the sport. Yeah. What, what are some of the signs that you use to judge and say to yourself, okay, there, we have a good culture here. Things are headed in the right direction. Yeah, for sure. I, it's, um, it was interesting, uh, particularly these last, these last few years where I took over a program and I remember, you know, the first thing was in like the very first practice I, I ran, it was just so quiet. Uh oh. And I, <laughs> I just brought everyone in. And was Brandeis, was Brandeis kind of like a loud, like more, uh, yeah, yeah. And, and Ben had, by the time I got there, he was, I think, five years in. So the cult, he had kind of, I think we, we brought in, um, we continued to bring, bring in better and better talent and continue to improve on it, but he had set the foundation with the, with the culture of the program. 
And so uh, when I took over at Wheaton, it was, I remember my, these prospectuses were so quiet and I just, it was constantly prodding people to just cheer each other on during practices. And the nature of the sport compared to a lot of other sports is you literally have a break after every single point, after every single rally, you have to go pick up a ball. Like there is a break. So during that time, my big thing is that you have to be purposeful with that time. It's, and because you're going to spend in reality, you're going to spend a lot more time walking around picking up tennis balls than you actually are hitting tennis balls. And so those are all opportunities to be a, to be a great teammate and to build someone up. Yeah, and it seems like that that's where a lot of the opportunity might be, kind of the breaks. I mean, mm-hmm. tennis is such a mental sport. How do you think about helping people navigate that, The the uh, where they will reflect on points or start um, getting in ruts mentally? So we uh, we have different methodologies for it, and sort of each player is going to kind of customize it, going to customize it, but um, the, the main method that, I've used throughout my career with players was developed by this, uh, this performance psychologist named Jim Lair, who, uh, he calls it the 16 second cure. And so, uh, between every tennis point, you're, you're technically allotted 20 seconds. Um, and so with the 16 second cure, there's four steps. The first step is a positive response. So to whatever happened, whether you won the point, lost the point, there's a positive response. Step two is relaxation. So it's going for us, it's walking back to the, to the fence and, taking a couple long deep breaths. Um, step three is preparing what I'm making a plan for what I'm going to do for the next point. And then step four is, is ritual. So you're serving a returning ritual. And then one of the things I added into step four is at that point, they, the players have to either say something verbally out loud, that's positive to themselves or to the team or to their, to, to a teammate. So it's just being very consistent with that. And so, Players kind of, that's the framework, and then different players are going to sort of adapt it a little bit, but that's sort of the basic framework. That's that's uh, pretty cool. I'm trying to think of how I can incorporate that in my work. <laughs> well, the, the biggest thing, and like the biggest part of it, and that we spend probably the most time is just relax, like relaxation. Right. Is just yeah. taking a deep breath. You know, people don't breathe. We have we have so many of the answers in life come from just taking taking a step back and taking a deep breath. That's pretty interesting. I think uh, having worked in the business world, we're not really taught anything like this. Everything is kind of go 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 productivity productivity productivity. And it's interesting how sports uh, it's very performance driven. You can kind of judge the outcomes, but there often are these spaces. Uh, in most sports where you do have that downtime and it's, it's easy to insert kind of this reflective or emotional intelligence practice. Um, how, how do you, what do you think people could learn, uh, from these things, uh, to implement in their lives? I think people feel like they need to have an answer really, really quickly and right. they need to accomplish things really quickly and quicker doesn't mean better. Uh, and, so I think just across, across whatever discipline you're, you're working in, I think when someone's asking you to, asking you to do, to do something or asking you a question, just being willing to just take a second to, to just think about what you're actually gonna, what, like, what's the most productive response there? And, and being okay with saying, I'm, 
I need to I need to figure this out. Uh, right. And right. So and, I I, ju- I just edited out my own pause. Um, or it will be edited out in the final version, but I was reflecting on your previous uh, question. I had to kind of take a second to digest it and uh, figure out where to take it. So you're coaching both men and women, both at Brandeis and now at Wheaton, which beyond being just impressive coaching two teams, uh, how do you think about coaching uh, men versus women? What have you learned? And it's, it's interesting. I mean, I think just the, the biggest part of it is I've grown up on men, on boys and then men's sports teams. And so the communication piece is one where I didn't have to really think too hard about it. I think, you know, I think I was a thoughtful teammate and I tried to communicate well, but you know, the, the sort of like the quick off the cuff responses to whatever's going on. Um, you know, I was, I've had, say, by the time I got into to college coaching, I probably had, you know, been playing on teams since I was in kindergarten in some capacity. And so it's sort of, we're looking at 20 years of, of experience around that, around boys and men. Um, and on the women's side, it's, it's trying to have the same values, but understanding that sometimes the communication has to be, I just have to think more about it. And so I don't actually think I'm saying very different things. I'm just sort of probably pausing a little bit more um, yeah. before saying those and, and kind of, you know, also noting that there we, we try to sort of treat each player individually and sort of figure out how to connect with, with each of them. But I think I just sort of, I think I've done a decent job of sort of self-educating on myself on just, the the history of you know male dominance in our in our society and sort of just knowing that I need to be something I say in the same tone and with the same messaging may be internalized different because of just implicit biases that have been sort of part of people's consciousness since they were born. Building on that, how did you get involved in uh, the Healthy Masculinity Project? It was uh, there was another coach who um, who who was sort of uh, spearheading it, and it was something that's interesting to me. I think that um, kind of growing up, my my dad wasn't sort of that traditional like kind of super traditional man. He was he was pretty he could be he was pretty in touch with his emotions. He was willing to be expressive. He was very much a proponent of sort of just, you know, helping, helping women, helping people of color, helping all sorts of, you know, whatever different type of people you could, um, you could meet. And so that was kind of part of my consciousness. And I think that, you know, one of the things you sort of see through coaching in particular is that players are just in, in these emotional spaces throughout, throughout competition. And, men are just not very good at at expressing that well and channeling it well a lot of the times a lot of the times they do a phenomenal job and then a good amount of the times they they do not and i think there's a big struggle with with men particularly college age men being able to express themselves constructively and and so it was a really cool opportunity to kind of step into that space to try to um, to try to work on that. 
That's awesome. Yeah, that definitely resonates with me. I think part of the challenge is we just don't have the role models, right? Or the, uh, the people we're looking at and saying, okay, I can actually be like that. Um, but definitely something I've struggled with as well. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think it's, it's all of us. It was, it just wasn't a really, it's not really a part of the, the consciousness. And I think it kind of ties in just in general to emotional intelligence, which is something that, you know, sort of society sort of forces on women in certain ways, but doesn't hold men to that standard growing up. And so it's right. just kind of like this vicious cycle, you know, when you eventually kind of go into a, a super results driven arena as a career, it just, it, it sort of perpetuate, it can perpetuate itself. Right. How, how do you answer the question? Uh, how do you be a man? Yeah, I think, I think the goal with our project at Wheaton, um, is to, is to broad, broaden that definition. Cause right now it's very constricted. Sort of toxic masculinity is about putting, putting men into a box and it's a pretty closed box. And, um, healthy masculinity as we, as I see it and as we see it is about sort of broadening that. And so it can be, it can be a lot of different things, but at the core, the values of caring for your, your peers and, and people around you just as people, um, that comes first and compassion needs to be a big piece of it. And so it's, we're just doing our, our best to give, give these young men the tools to be able to communicate well, to, understand that you can be being compassionate doesn't make you weak. It yeah. just makes you more well-rounded. So what's one action uh, you might tell somebody that's in college, like a young, uh, young man? Um, I think being, I think it's going to be important for them to find people that they're willing to open up with on a personal level. And, um, once you find them to utilize them as a tool, I think, um, I don't know if, if you would categorize yourself like this kind of growing up, but I certainly was not someone that was talking to a lot of people about my, about whatever issues were going on. Like we com- no, compartmentalized, <laughs> you know, I like compartmentalized a lot of, a lot of information and like whatever was going on and was just like, you know, I'm going to just deal with it. and dealing with it is for me at that point kind of growing up was just sort of like blocking it out and just focusing on the, uh, the other stuff. And it was really only, I think as I, as I got older and, um, and honestly started developing more friendships with women that I was able to, you know, at that point it was that, that was a safe space to be emote, to be able to be emotional. And then as I got more comfortable with that and as more, just less insecure, I was able to kind of find, find other men that I could confide in those same, those same things. I love it. And I think there's such an opportunity. It's not even the healthy masculinity. It's just having that deeper self-awareness that Mm -hmm. is going to attract people that actually want to follow you as a leader. Um, so, uh, I appreciate you, uh, doing the work and, uh, I think there's so much opportunity for uh, a lot of men to really step up and uh, lead, whether it's in the business world or uh, sports or, or anything. Thank you. Um, <laughs> I think um, 
I was so impressed with just the the amount of just what the response was like and how to hear to hear these 18 to 22 year olds be able to say I've never had this type of space to express myself and I'm so happy we're able to do this um that's that's so rewarding to hear that because even even in just sort of one day we're able to sort of plant a seed. We're not going to solve the problems, but just planting those seeds and right. encouraging these encouraging these young men to start that self-exploration that you're talking about is and that self-awareness is is huge. That's like a, that that in itself is just a huge a huge step because I sort of see it as it's pla- it's providing resources and planting a lot of information and then letting them kind of run with it. Right. I think it's just creating more models, right? We we default so much uh, to this prototypical leader, and it's not reality. Um, in reality, there are hundreds of different types of leaders, and uh, it's really about creating uh, more opportunities for more people to step up. Um, so I love it. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, even in sort of a different context, it sort of makes me think about, you know, like, have you read um, the book Quiet by Susan Cain? Yeah, that book's uh, incredible. It, yeah, and it's, it made me realize I was an introvert. But it was interesting because it was my my brother in law, who's a, a a fellow a fellow Sloan grad and in the consulting world, who um who recommended it, and it was I think it it's really particularly it can be really great for for young men as well, and I, I recommend the book all the time because you you have these these college age men who some are naturally introverted most are not great communicators and the book just sort of shows how like we need that diversity of of thought and perspective to really function optimally in whatever whatever whether it's the sports world whether it's the business world whatever whatever industry it is we we need that diversity of thought I love it. Yeah, that's. Uh, I think you're the third person that's recommended that book on the podcast. Uh, we'll have to see if Susan Kane will start sponsoring. Uh, so shifting gears, you wrote in an article you've driven by gratitude, compassion, and purpose. How do you how do you think about incorporating these in in your day each day? Maybe some some actions you take or um, things you reflect on to uh, make sense of those. I think in general, just. I, I was sort of very lucky in a lot of ways in that my, my family was, was reasonably, reasonably well off growing up. My, my dad's a physician. Um, and, uh, but they, both of my parents grew up without, without a ton of money. And we, and with like a pretty decent sized family back in India and growing up, we used to go back to India almost almost every summer up until I was probably 14, 15. And so growing, going there in the summer, there's just, there's so much poverty around you that we, I think we sort of escaped some of the, the issues of entitlement that, that could have otherwise come into place. And I think my parents were really, um, it was really important to them that, we experienced that partly just to have the connections with our, with our family there. Um, but also to, but also just to see what that, that we are lucky. And, and so that sort of, I think was a huge, that made a big impact on just, uh, my, when I say we, my, I'm talking about my sister and, uh, and me, we, 
I think it sort of just colored the way we look at the at the world. And it, you know, I, I am very lucky, and I got lucky being born to the parents that I that I'm was born to. And so, I think in the day to day, just being able to show appreciation for for just the little things and knowing that I don't have a, a ton to a ton to worry about in that like I have a stable job. I love what I do. And that's like, right. you know, we can we can have a part of a different conversation probably a different part of this conversation is so we're gonna be around that. But I love what I do. I have a stable job. I'm you know, I can cover my rent. I um so I think just being aware of that is really is really important. Um and I think in, in general, people, I feel like I'm surrounded by people who are great teammates. And that's one of the cool things working in athletic departments is that everyone's generally gets involved with that because they, they had a really great experience as a student athlete. And they, um, and so they're, they're great teammates to me. And so it just, it makes it easy. It's that, it's that culture. It's that culture that's kind of built into the, uh, into the structure of that type of environment. How do you think about a job versus a sense of purpose? There, I think they're linked. And, and I think when I think of purpose, there's obviously a, a, a little, that applies to different facets of life. But I think uh, when I'm looking at my job and I, I sort of am adapting this line that I'm, I'm taking from a, a coworker of mine, but he, he sort of said it really well. I think part of my job is to build teams that win and like I care about winning and I want to win conference titles and be nationally ranked and build all Americans. But with my job, my sense of purpose is in developing people and developing them, my players into well-rounded, well-rounded individuals who can, who are going to go be great contributors to society. And that drives me. Wins and losses enough that that doesn't drive me. Um, right. I I just don't. I don't. I don't care enough about that because the values that I teach them that's what's going to carry through for them for the rest of their life. And and you know people are on teams for the rest of their lives. They just aren't called that. Right. It's called right. you know your the company you work for and your family and whatever other organizations you're a part of. But you need those same values and those tools to be successful in those areas. And when did that clear sense of purpose emerge for you? Um, probably, I think it's, I think it really started to come through working at Brandeis, uh, in that I think, um, Ben, the head coach was, he's about, um, five years, five or six years older, older than me. And so he was a great resource and mo he modeled that for me. So much of what I learned, I just learned being around him. And, sh and just seeing how much he cared about his players and how invested he he is in developing them, and then seeing how that translate not translates not just to on court success but off court success, and um and I think it, it's it's sort of tied into just coming into my own as as a coach and as a person. I think a lot of this stuff, so much of you know, success comes uh, in certain ways comes back to personal insecurity. So it's like when you trust yourself, that puts you in the space to be more assertive and more trusting in what you're doing or what you're trying to do. And I, I don't have all the answers. I'm a way better coach than I was five years ago, and I'm, I'll hopefully be a much better coach in five years than I am today. Yeah. What are some of the things there that you've uh, changed your mind on 
coaching-wise over the years? I think just focusing a lot more on the the emotional side of things. That's that's really the biggest thing is just where we're in a where I think it's crystallized to me how much development needs to happen for these 18 to 22 year olds in in terms of developing their emotional intelligence and it was something that didn't happen to me I think in a particularly systematic way. I think I sort of kind of figured it out in a bit right. in a bit more of a haphazard route and 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 then sort of well was interested in it and sort of self-educated myself on it but I think I have this opportunity to to be a bit more systematic with it uh and give them these tools and I think for these young people just teaching them I think teaching them how to struggle and how to embrace adversity is is so important for them because I think one of the, I think one of the big changes I'm, I'm sort of seeing is just how involved parents are with these kids. Cause I, I start getting to know them, you know, when they're in high school, yeah. typically when they're like juniors in high school and they're going through the recruiting process and just they need to learn how to be able to function on their own and struggle on their own and kind of figure things out on their own. Who's somebody that's inspired you or uh, changed your mind in how you think about leadership, coaching, or uh, sports over the years? Wow, um, I think I think I've I try to just I think most coaches do this. I think we see we see inspiration, we see pieces of inspiration from a lot of different different people, um, and so I think in the coaching world, I've drawn a lot on on Bill Belichick and just sort of how prepared he is and how much of an emphasis there is on that piece of the puzzle. Um, and by that same token, I think looking at someone like Greg Popovich who, or Steve Kerr, who are, who are similarly focused on that preparation, but are also sort of willing to speak their mind in a way that Belichick in a way that Belichick isn't. And, and that's, you know, yeah, you know, maybe it's a little taboo criticizing Belichick in uh, in the Boston area, but five I mean, five Super Bowls. Yeah, I mean the results <laughs> speak for that. Yeah, for sure, the results speak for themselves. Yeah. And like, listen, he's a Wesleyan alum. Like, you know, right. I I got a lot of love for him in a lot of different ways. Well, I think you can almost judge a coach by how his like ex players speak about him, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. But I mean, on the, I mean, it's also outside of the coaching world, it's. I think in part for me, it's also, you know, people like, I don't know, Mindy Kaling and Hassan Minaj and like these, these people of color of whether they're, they're South Asian who are kind of following different paths. Like I, this people don't probably pick, you know, a reasonably well educated Indian guy to go into coaching and, um, I, I love what I do, but I think I was sort of fortunate in being able to sort of see different people, see people in media doing different things that they're, that they're, that they love, do, that they're, they're passionate about and they love doing. One final thing. I'd love to get your thoughts on this question. What can people either working in teams, companies with people learn or implement around coaching? Uh, helping other people be successful. What would you recommend? A lot of things, but I think the two the two that I would focus on are 
developing emotional intelligence and and being consistent with what you're doing. I think in general, people learn at their own pace, and I can't. I can tweak my tweak what I'm doing. I can do different drills. I can try to say slightly different things, but the reality is that I need to be consistent with my message and just trust that people are invested, that my players are invested and they're going to, they care about what they're doing and they're trying as hard as they can. And if that's, if that's the case, they're going to figure it out when they figure it out. And I think I've had players who I've had players who have, who are super really, really easy to coach and you just, you tell them to do something and they just kind of do it. They figure it out. There's no fear, etc. And then other players who, you know, I remember a guy who kind of everything finally clicked with him and literally the last weekend of competition of his senior year of being on a college tennis team. And so, um, it's just being being consistent and then just recognizing the the value in developing the emotional side of of their players. I love it. Uh, well, thank you for joining today. I wish you the best of luck uh, in your upcoming seasons, and uh, thanks for your insights. Well, I'm excited to I'm excited to have been on here, and um, and I think I want you know I want you to know this, and I want your listeners to know this. Don't don't edit this out. But I think what you're doing <laughs> is I think what you're doing is phenomenal, and it's inspiring because I think it's so challenging for people, particularly coming out of the corporate world, to to decide to leave that in in sort of the traditional in the traditional method, and to kind of just trust that there are there is a different path. And there are a lot of different paths to just happiness for everyone. And while you, you know, you have to be thoughtful about how you do it and you can't just do it overnight. You got to think through and do a little bit of planning. I think everyone can be, everyone can be happy with doing what they're doing and everyone should be able to and should have that opportunity. So you got to do a little planning, but I think it's doable. And I, I applaud you for, for taking this taking this initiative and kind of taking this career path and sort of changing gears the way that you've done, um, done this past year. You're too nice. Uh, thank you. I, uh, really appreciate it and, uh, enjoyed talking to you today. Thank you for listening to the podcast. This has been an incredibly fun experiment for me and I'm loving talking to such incredible guests I've received some awesome feedback and I appreciate all the suggestions and just the praise. I'm kind of blown away. Uh, It's just so amazing to have such positive support. I hate asking for further support, but would love if you could share or recommend the podcast to one friend. If you are inclined to support more, I've actually set up a Patreon page, which I am experimenting with and potentially going to release some exclusive content and with the goal of building a community of people who are passionate of making sense of the future of work and enabling people to do work that matters to them. To learn more, you can check that out at bondlesspod.com. Again, thanks for the support. And if you have ideas, questions you want me to answer on a future Q&A podcast or just suggestions, would love to hear them all. Please email me at paul at think-boundless.com.
Hey all, thanks for listening to the episode. I really appreciate the support and especially always love when people reach out letting me know what they think about the specific episodes. If you want to go deeper into Pathless Path World, you can, of course, check out my book. It's sold. It's going to hit 50000 soon. I think by the time you're hearing this, it will probably have already sold 50000 which is mind-blowing. But I continue all the support of people that buy and share the book. If you want to meet others on Pathless Paths, I have a community, which you can find at pathlesspath.com slash membership, and you can join and meet hundreds of others around the world trying to make sense of weird paths and meeting others along the way. Thank you so much for listening. Hope you have a good day.